tomorrow, the 22nd, is Earth Day. Earth Day for me is at Earth to Brit. It's every day in personal life, podcast life, all of it. I love Earth Day so freaking much. But seriously, don't be an asshole, okay? Just do the right thing. Recycle. Get a... Don't use straws or get what I have. One of those metal straws, silicone straws. I don't care. Stop using straws. Reduce your plastic. I mean, just the common sense stuff. Also, if you're interested, I can teach you how to make a brick. Okay, hold on. That sounds kind of like drugs. It's not. It's really interesting. You fill water bottles or any form of plastic that is not going to be recycled. And you just like straws that you find or that you've used, whatever. Anything that is plastic or dangerous to end up in the ocean or land or whatever and it's not going to be recycled, you cut it up into tiny pieces and you shove it all in a water bottle until you can stand on the water bottle and it's hard as a brick. You would not believe, and it doesn't have to be a water bottle. You can use a tea jug. You can use anything, uh, juice bottles, whatever. Um, it's kind of amazing how much they hold. It's wild. And once you get like, I think 10 or so, you can look up where to send them. And then there are places that will take those and dispose of them properly properly um look anyone else know that properly is just two syllables i'm hanging by a thread but i'm here for you also next week the 28th this snuck up on me in a way i knew it was coming but i didn't realize it was happening next week next tuesday is my for one year and it happens to be on a tuesday i mean it's fate written in the stars. I have no idea what I'm doing for it, but I know I'm going to have fun because I freaking deserve it. So please enjoy this episode and definitely, definitely tune in next week and show your love because it's a whole year. I did it almost in a week. I can say that, but I'm just like, I can't stop smiling. I'm so excited. That is like, wow. Okay. I'm very proud of myself and I'm not even going to try to tone that down. All right. Love you guys. Enjoy. This is a Yellow Wave production. everyone it's time for another episode at earth to brit and uh this week it felt right it just felt like it was destiny and meant to be to cover sharon tape and uh with that obviously we'll include a little bit of the labianca murders as well and clearly i'm going to touch on charles manson and family because duh I mean, this is something that even before I knew who Sharon Tate was, I had seen Helter Skelter. I'd heard of uh, Charles Manson and his family, the cult, all of those things. But I didn't have a clue how they all folded in together. And I didn't know anything about Sharon Tate. And the second I learned about her, I was like, in the weirdest way, and I this is, I don't, you know what? I don't care. Fuck it. I don't care if this sounds weird. I don't care if this sounds like I'm like a weird stalker fan. 
Uh, well, first of all, you can't stalk somebody who's not here physically, but you you get what I'm trying to say. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know anything about this or how to explain it. But there is something about Sharon Tate that I feel in the str- like the strongest way. I just feel like I know her. I feel like oh, it's so hard to explain accurately with how it feels to me because I just like there are no words for it. I feel like a bond that I just it's really weird and it's really 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 pulling me towards the story and if you remember a couple weeks ago I talked about how I wanted to do it then but it just there was just so much information and even now I've done hours and hours of research and compiling and ordering everything getting everything into it where I want it to be and I'm just like it's almost like I need to do this such a justice that I'm afraid to even start or afraid to even try so basically in order to start recording just a minute ago I gave myself a pep talk that it's fine it is what it is like it's never going to be perfect it's never going to be what you want it to be it's always and this is goes for every week once I am done recording I will days later weeks later, months later, think of all the things I should have done differently or how to have how I could have made it better. Guess what? You just I just have to let that go. I just have to acknowledge that there's going to be that side of me that's going to be like, this isn't even good enough. It's never going to be good enough. Why are you even trying? And just let that voice be heard. Let it say what it needs to say. And then like kind of give it a little bit of a hug and say, all right, you so you're afraid um you want to be perfect you're not going to be it's impossible that's okay i see you thank you for coming um now go ahead and sit down and we're going to do this okay you can stay and you can be there cuz you're going to be anyways <laughs> like lord knows you're not leaving anytime soon fear but uh we're we're doing this so yeah that's literally what i have to do especially times a million with this one because I really want nothing more than to get this out in a way that reflects accurately my insides like how I feel about her and the story and just like what she brings out of me and it's uh it's a it's a high standard for sure it's it's a very large shoes to fill, so to speak. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to fill those shoes. I'm doing it. I'm going to talk about Sharon Tate. Let's go. Sharon Marie Tate was born in Dallas, Texas on January 24th, 1943, one day before her parents' wedding anniversary, actually. Best gift ever, am I right? That's so cute. Which means her sun sign is in Aquarius for anyone even semi-interested in zodiac astrology. Her dad, Paul James Tate, was a United States Army officer. He was born in 1922 and passed away in 2005. Her mom, Doris Gwendolyn Willett was born in 1924, and she passed away in 1992. Sharon had two younger sisters, Deborah and Patty, in order. 
From day one, it was clear to everyone, especially her parents, that Sharon was gifted with rare beauty and a graceful, sweet disposition. By the time she was six months old, six months old, I repeat that, only six months, she'd won her first beauty contest at Miss Tiny Tot of Dallas Pageant. And years later, Doris would recall that strangers would come and stop in their tracks just to gaze at her. This could sound creepy, but I get the impression that it was just a natural reaction for people, strangers, to consistently be shocked by Sharon, and they just couldn't help but stop and stare. As you'll quickly figure out, this is a theme throughout her entire life, although it was much too short. Because of Colonel Paul Tot, Tot, really? Not even close. Because of Colonel Paul Tate's position in Army Intelligence, the family had to move pretty regularly all over the United States and Europe. That's that's very common with that's there's a term for that, army brats. So this is nothing new to this is not like just their family. Sharon learned to make friends fast and to hold on to those friends that she made even when they were separated by distance. She learned the value of true friendship early in her life. I'd argue that it's more accurate to say that she learned the value of relationships in general because she also developed a very strong sense of family at this time. Which makes sense because for the first 10 years of her life, her parents would be her sole companions. Until 1952, that is, when her first baby sister, Deborah, was born. Patty, the youngest Tate daughter, was born five years after. So let's fast forward a little bit to Sharon's teen years when she begins to win various beauty pageants like Miss Richland and Miss Autorama and even started some work as a model. In the spring of 1960, Sharon was on the cover of an American military newspaper called Stars and Stripes, in which she was wearing a swimsuit, cowboy hat, and boots, and she was sitting on top of a missile. This small taste of fame is what lit her fire and set her eyes on to Hollywood. One day, Not long after this, while she's out on a walk, Sharon was approached by a choreographer who wanted her to make an appearance on a Pat Boone special. Her role would be pretty simple. She'd be serenaded by Boone. Sharon was determined to do this, but her parents were pretty reluctant. Eventually, they compromised and gave their consent if, and only if, a guard was securing her hotel room overnight. Can somebody get a guard on set, please? (laughs) I just, I love that. Her parents seem like my kind of people. So the guard was hired. Sharon does this appearance for this Pat Boone special. All is well. Sharon uh, moved around a lot because of her dad. If you remember, he was a United States Army officer. And so, yeah, there's a term for that, Army brat. Um, So she attended Chief Joseph Junior High School. That's a mouthful. (laughs) from September of 1955 to June of 1958. And from what I can see here, that is the longest run she had in one place. So then she went to Columbia High School in Richland, Washington, from September of 1958 to October of 1959. So that's a year and a month. She then attended Irvine High School in El Paso, Texas, from late fall of 1959 which I'm guessing October or November, considering she had just moved from Washington, to April of 1960. And then she went to the Vicenza American High School in Vicenza, Italy. By the way, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I intended to look that up. Obviously, I failed to do that. (laughs) 
whatever. Sue me. I'm kidding. Don't. I'm joking. It's moving along. From April of 1960 to June of 1961. And that's actually where she graduated high school, which would be the year of 1961. Um, she actually, this uh, school for American students in Italy, I'm, I'm not sure if they had Italian students as well. I would assume they would. I don't, I feel like there wouldn't be that many Americans that they strictly only Americans, but I feel like it was kind of focused for that reason of people who were living there for um, the services and stuff like that and their children. But that's where she kind of discovered for the first time, aside from her parents, relationships like friendships with other students that she went to school with be probably because they were in a foreign country. So it's like, not only do we move around a lot, but we're also in a foreign country and we're in this together. I can totally sense the fact that that would be like easy peasy laying the field for having really, really good friendships. And the fact that it's her first time having that feeling is just, it's really sweet, but also kind of sad, but it is what it is. And she did the best with it. I have to say. So while she's at this American school in Italy, uh, and finding lasting friendships for the first time in her life, her and these friends were really interested in a filming that was happening nearby of Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man, uh, starring Paul Newman, Susan Strasberg, and Richard Boehmer. And they, most of them, I'm assuming not all, maybe all of them, who knows, obtained parts as film extras. So Boehmer, one of the main characters, noticed Tate in the crowd and decided to introduce himself to her. And then they started dating during the production of the film. I mean, this is the shit movies movies are made of, and it's real life. I just love it. I love it so much. So as they're uh, doing this film, they actually date, blah, 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 not blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean. And while this is going on, and she's just simply an extra in quotes, Bamer is encouraging her to pursue a film career. He obviously saw something in her. I don't think he was just saying that because he was her boyfriend. I think he really saw the quality that was just like the diamond in the rough, so to speak. So then we know about the whole 1960 Pat Boone. I talked about that earlier. I believe I've done so many recordings for this. <laughs> if I didn't, then um, I'm going to have to reiterate that later on. We'll see. So then later that year, when Barabbas was being filmed near Verona, once again, she, Sharon, was hired as an extra. And this is when actor Jack Palance, again, I'm not, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but it, it is what it is. The meat, I'm bringing you the meat, the details, I'm trying whatever. Uh, he was impressed by her appearance and her attitude. Even though her role was clearly way too small to judge her talent, he, again, like Bamer, saw something in her and was just drawn to her, maybe. He, he just, he wanted to see more. He wanted her to keep doing this. So he actually arranged a screen test for her in Rome. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, that did not lead to further work. Again, timing is everything and the best, if you listen to anybody's story who's like extremely famous, we're talking Academy Award winners, Oscar winners, not all of them, but most of them have rejection. It's for everyone. 
even the best of us, like that's how you get to be the best. So for anyone listening who is passionate about something or wants to try something but feels like they're just going to be told no, yeah, you are going to be told no a shit ton of times. You keep going because everyone's told no. Everyone. Okay, I digress. That was just a small little rant that I didn't plan, but it's fine. Um, so then she ends up returning to the United States alone, claiming that she did it because she wanted to study further and do other things, but really she tried to find film work. After a few months, Doris, her mother, was afraid for her safety and she had a nervous breakdown. And then that nervous breakdown caused her daughter to come back to Italy. Something about this. If you remember, I was talking about how her mom and dad refused to let her do that Pat Boone thing unless there was a guard well they said no the whole time and then finally they're like okay we'll let her go but there has to be a guard with her at all times at her hotel room and then she goes to America and her mom is just she has a mental breakdown that's a big deal so it's a a big deal and it's not I'm not trying to say like it never happens it happens all the time but it to lead up to a mental breakdown it is it is a lot. It, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's to be taken seriously. I want to touch on this because I think that's not crazy, but absolutely mind-blowing. And I am fascinated by the fact that her mother clearly, subconsciously, unconsciously, however you want to look at it, she knew, like her cells inside of her body that created this daughter knew, I feel, knew her fate in a way like she knew without knowing that she's not safe that something bad's going to happen that's my take if you disagree fine you do you I'm I'm over here doing me and I want us all to do ourselves because that's what makes the world go around but come on think about it as a mother especially you just have that sense as women, everyone does, but as women, it's even stronger. But then mothers, it's like the top of the tier. Think of a three-tiered cake. You're at the top of that shit as a mom. Like, you don't question a mother's intuition. And I think that Doris was giving us some major foreshadowing. So yeah, uh, Sharon comes back because of her mother's breakdown, which is something for sure but no worries because the whole family ends up coming back to the u.s in 1962 when tate breaks off and moves to los angeles where she contacted richard bamer that boyfriend from the first show she was movie she was in uh she gets a hold of his agent harold gefsky let me just say this uh, yet again if you're just now tuning in first of all how can you listen to something in the middle i or That's not the beginning. I don't know, but you need to know always. I always do my best to pronounce names and places and words correctly, but I don't always succeed. But I'm a human, so it's fine. And again, we all make mistakes and I don't, I I have plans to look up all this stuff, but there's just no time for that. So after they meet, he agrees to represent her and gets her some work in television and magazine advertisements. Then in 1963, he introduces her to Martin Ransahoff, who is director of Filmways Incorporated, who then Ransahoff signs her to a seven-year contract. That's amazing. That's goals. I mean, that's like like smooth sailing compared to some stories. (laughs) 
uh, so she was considered for the role of Billy Joe Bradley on CBS's sitcom Petticoat Junction, but Ransohoff believed that she lacked the confidence, and so that role was given to Janine Riley. So he gave Sharon small parts in Mr. Ed and then in the Beverly Hillbillies to help her get experience, basically to get her out there, get her working, and to give her chances to learn and grow before getting her a big or more substantial role. Um, And here's a direct quote from Sharon in a 1967 article in Playboy. She says, Mr. Ransoff didn't want the audience to see me till I was ready. I would agree. I think that's exactly what happened. So it's during that time that she meets the French actor Philippe Forquet and they begin dating. That's in 1963. Uh, They actually were engaged at one point, but their relationship was volatile and they fought all the time. Then they had different career pressures, which would literally drive them apart. So they broke up the next year in 1964. In 1964, after that breakup, she meets Jay Sebring, who is a former sailor, and he had actually established himself as a leading hairstylist in Hollywood. And I will be providing you the actual Sharon Tate website, which is uh, ran by her sister, Deborah. It's an amazing thing. You learn so much about her and her friends will talk on it and leave comments. It's crazy awesome because you, you can't get something that intimate anywhere else. Believe me, I've looked. Um, but in this one, you'll see like he really was the guy that you go to to get your hair done. I think that's crazy awesome. So later on, she, Sharon, would say that Jay's nature was super gentle, but he also proposed to her and she declined. She said that she, at the time that he proposed to her, which I'm guessing was not long after 1964, that as soon as she got married, she would stop her career and at that time she didn't want to stop her career she was just getting started also it it I just wish she was still here for so many reasons but I want to know why would you stop your career like did you think that you had to or is that just a personal preference she's not wrong if it is I'm just so curious why you would want to get married and like maybe she wanted to have a child right away when she got married I don't know what her thinking was I'm just so curious by that mindset even now it's still there. Like people still feel that way. Um, and I just, maybe because it's so opposite of me that I just want to understand it. Not judging, just want to understand more. Continuing right along with her film career, which was all too short, just like her life. In 1964, Sharon made a screen test for Sam Peckinpah opposite Steve McQueen for the film, The Cincinnati Kid. Ransahoff and Peckinpah agreed that Sharon's timidity, timidity, beep, 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 humidity, timidity, 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 did do? What the fuck am I even saying? Tim, am I honestly am concerned for my brain matter right now because this word that I know, I'm looking at it. I've said it several times in my life. I've never had a problem. It's just like, it's like quarantine brain. I'm telling you, things are just so weird. It's, this is weird. I don't even know. Tip, I'm, okay, fuck me. Tim, so timid, I know that. 
right, timid. But then timidity, you know what I'm trying to say. Please tell me you do for the love of God. Give me something. Give me one win today. Just one. I'm not asking for much. I just need one win. If I said it wrong, correct it in your brain and pretend I said it perfectly as if this never happened. So her being timid, that word, and then lack of experience would cause her to kind of get like uh, nervous and mess up a lot. So they said that she, you know what, instead of doing this, we're just going to pass on you right now and we're going to hire Tuesday Weld. So again, she comes so close. She's considered because she's obviously on the cusp. She's right there. There's star quality, obviously, for sure. But then there, there's something there too where she's just like second guessing herself. Um, so then she continues to do more TV stuff, stuff like that, auditioning all the time, which is great. That's the best practice ever, I think. And so she gets all this experience. Um and unsuccessfully auditions for the role of Liesel in the film version of The Sound of Music. So then Ronsehoff gives Sharon walk-on role. Seriously, it's all coming apart. It's all melting. Walk-on roles in two motion pictures in which he was the producer. Kind of like a, I can work with you because I know you. And like, kind of a step up, but like still able to guide her, if that makes sense. The first was the Americanization of Emily, and then the second was the Sandpiper. Then, in late 1965, Ransohoff finally gave Sharon her first major role in a motion picture in the film Eye of the Devil, co-starring David Neven, Deborah Kerr, Donald Pleasance, and David Hemmings. Lots of D names. Very strange. I'm just noticing that for the first time. Also, David Niven, Neven. N-I-V-E-N. I'm sorry. I have no idea. I will tell you this, though. I, in my research, and I call it research, but really, I'm just, I love her so much. I feel that connection. I'm going to remind you of it. This is important to me. It's not just another episode. Like, I really, really care for this story. I really want to do it justice. However, I watched some of her acting in, um, different films, different things on YouTube. And I'm telling you right now, when I can't even look at, I'm just looking everywhere because it's so important to me that you hear this. She has it. Girlfriend has the thing. That thing that so few have, oh my God, she, when she comes on the screen, you, you notice it's quiet, her quiet presence, but it's so powerful. Oh, you guys, I'm, (laughs) she's amazing. So it makes me like kind of wonder what people are so afraid of, like get, let her just do the damn thing, please. Can somebody let her do the damn thing? Just because she's not fighting tooth over nail and screwing people over and throwing them under the bus to get parts give her the part just because she's quiet and not like give it to me give it to me well I want it, I want it. she's a queen she has presence and queens don't beg however they shouldn't have to so give her the part I feel like I just want to be right there and be like just do it give her the part and watch what happens eventually they do however it takes them far too long whatever 
fate, whatever, destiny, I don't know what you believe in, but I just can't because I truly think that she had it all along and wasn't going to beg. And I'm here for that. And I respect her even more because of it. And go on YouTube, check. I can only provide so many links, you guys. Otherwise, you're going to be reading a goddamn book at the end in the show notes. I don't want to do that to you. Go on YouTube, look up some of her scenes. You're welcome. So she's still, at the time that she's still dating Jay, even though we know that doesn't last forever. However, they do stay friends for a long time and he will show up later at the most crucial moment. It's just, again, the shit movie's made of, but real life and tragic at this point. But they travel to London getting ready for a film. They're filming in London. And this is where she met the Alexandrian Wiccan high priest and high priestess. Alex and Maxine Sanders. Stop it. I can I just like get into a time machine yesterday and go everywhere she went. I mean, seriously, that's so amazing. I can't even handle that. Um, so then while this is going on and they're traveling to London and doing all the coolest shit ever, uh, R- Ronsenhoff is promoting Sharon. Which is a good idea, especially because this is her first big role. So, also, Ranzahoff is easy. She did it for you. Like, you don't even have to lift a finger. Uh, can you guys tell I'm a fan? Okay, I'm going to try to rein it in because we really got a lot of information to get through and I need to just slow down and, like, stop fangirling so very much. So then, he, while this is going on, he's promoting her, blah, blah, blah. He arranges the production of a short documentary called all eyes on Sharon Tate. I mean, Ransahoff, you are brilliant. That is so magnetic. Like, try, if you were at, alive during this time, try not to watch that. There's no way you did. There is no way you weren't ready to watch that with a bag of popcorn, everything, drinks ready. Let's do this. For real. That's a, such a great title. Um, and he wanted it and made it happen to be released at the same time as Eye of the Devil, which is like a, consider it like a boosting a Facebook or Instagram post. That's exactly what this is at that time. That's what they had. So this movie comes out, it's her first role, and then this documentary all about her comes out at the same time. I applaud you. Love that. She He had her back. He had her back, which is great. This Eye of the, um, not Eye of the Devil, that's the movie. All Eyes on Sharon Tate has an interview included in it with Eye of the Devil director J. Lee Thompson, who talks about his initial doubts about her potential. Like, who is she? Like, I don't even know if we can do that. And he quotes, we even agreed that if after the first two weeks, Sharon was not quite making it, we would put her back in cold storage. But... He reiterates that he realized very quickly that Tate was, and this is a direct quote, tremendously exciting. Thank you. Finally, somebody agrees. Uh, So she played Odile, who was a witch who exerts this mysterious power over a landowner who was played by Neven and his wife, played by Kerr. she didn't have as many lines as the other actors. Her performance was considered crucial to the film. And she was 
required more than any other cast members to set an ethereal tone. Let me tell you, she does that naturally. Watch those YouTube clips. I'm telling you guys, she is like otherworldly. Naven described her as a great discovery. And Kerr said that with a reasonable amount of luck, Tate would be a great success. Basically, Kerr, it sounds like she's dissing her. She's not. She's just saying like just a tiny little bit of luck because the best of the best sometimes go without being known. It's just the way it is. And it's so sad, but there's, you just have to think about it, Hollywood and so many people. And it's just, the stars have to align all the time, every day for that to happen is crazy. So in interviews, Sharon commented on her good fortune in working with such professionals in her first film. And she said that she learned a lot about acting simply by watching Kerr at work. I love that observing and soaking it in. That's what I do too. Not with acting, but just I observe and I just, I love it. I love that so much. It's a very, very great method. A lot. So a lot of that filming took place in France and Jay returned to Los Angeles while this was going on to take care of his own business stuff. After all, he's the go-to hair guy, you know? So then after filming, Sharon stayed in London where she basically kind of went crazy and immersed herself in the fashion world and nightclubs. Don't blame her. You just did all that filming, stay there, live a little, enjoy, celebrate. And it's around this time that she met Roman Polanski, which if you know anything about Sharon Tate, you know that they end up married. And uh, yeah, they're like an iconic couple, a classic couple. However, we're going to find out a lot of fun stuff you probably didn't know, myself included, about when they first met and when they worked together and all of that. It wasn't like love at first sight at all, which makes it even better of a story. Later on, after an interview, clearly after they've been together and married, all that stuff, they both acknowledge the fact and agree that neither one of them were impressed by the other when they first met. It was basically like just another meeting. That's it. No sparks, no nothing. In fact, it wasn't, okay, so it was kind of like neutral. There was no like dislike or hate, but there was nothing great. It was just what you would think another meeting turned into the opposite of that. I I mean, that's amazing to me. So uh, they met when Polanski was planning The Fearless Vampire Killers, a movie, which was being co-produced by Ransahoff, Go Faker. And he had already decided that he wanted the redheaded actress Jill St. John for the female lead. Ransahoff, our boy who's got Sharon's back, insisted that Roman at least think about Tate, but he really, really, really was like, you just need to cast her. Don't even, don't even question it. Just cast her. And after meeting with her, he agreed that she would be suitable, which I love. Like she'll do. (laughs) It seems like she'll be fine, I guess. But there was a condition that would be basically the only reason he would hire her instead would be if she wore a red wig during filming. 
I mean, sorry, Roman, but cool. I mean, fine. Who's going to argue that? Would I feel like maybe he was expecting her to be a diva. I don't know. Or actually, I think he just was like so zoned in on his vision and he did not want to deter from that. And he is picking a different actress than what he had in mind. So I get that. For someone, I can understand like when I want something, I want it. I'm very driven, focused, determined. That's a big, bold move, an open move for him to just like accept a different actress, but require the wig. I can understand that for sure. Okay, so here's the fun part. It's like every life experience happens for a reason. This will prove that. The company, all the actors, everybody, producers, all that, they travel to none other than Italy for filming. And Sharon is fluent in Italian, obviously, because of what we talked about earlier. And that was very useful for communicating with local crew members that they hired in Italy, just probably to save money, but also it just makes sense. I'll tell you when we went to Brazil, if we were to go to Brazil without a native Brazilian, it would have still been amazing, but a totally different experience. We got the best experience ever, thanks to Rodrigo. Shout out, love you. Can't wait to go back. <laughs> just had to slide that. I just had to slide that in there. Um, so, if you can't tell, Polanski is quite a perfectionist and has little to no patience right away with Sharon because she's inexperienced. And there's an interview in which he says that there was one scene that he required, not he, he didn't require it. it. The scene that he was so obsessed with, it took 70 takes before he was satisfied. And that was probably like a, at the moment he was regretting it. But listen, Roman, you don't even know your future. It's like you have no idea what's to come. I just, I'm smiling so big because I love the story. So not only did he direct this film, he also played one of the main characters, not just any character, a main one, a Kyle, Kyle, seriously, a kyle young man who is intrigued by Sharon's character and begins a romance with her. C- meet cute. Film turned real life for real So as filming continued and the longer they spend together, he ends up, Roman ends up, the one who's like making her do 70 takes because it's not perfect. He praises her performances and her confidence grows, which of course it would. If you're filming with a perfectionist and they're making you do all this stuff and then they start talking good about you, um, you shouldn't ever depend on somebody else to feel good. But if you're human which we all are, that's going to do it. That's going to really, 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 really give you the cement to build your foundation for sure. Oh, what do you know? They begin dating. And not long after, Sharon moves into his London apartment. And after filming ends, Jay comes back to London where he insists on meeting Roman. By the way, this whole time that I'm talking about Jay going back to the U.S. for his business and then coming back, they're friends at this point. 
I, I might have mentioned earlier that they were dating. They were dating, but like they stayed fr- like best friends after. Again, I can't, how? I just can't stand that she's not here. Like she is so. That's amazing. And I love that so much. I'm just so mad. I don't want anyone to die, but it, why did it have to be her? You know? It, whatever. Okay. Reining it in. I keep saying that, and maybe I'll actually follow through and do it, but whatever. This could be a really long episode. Who who cares? If you're one who cares, then stop listening. Also, I love when I, one of my favorite podcasts give out long episodes I don't want this 20, 30, 40 minute shit, which I keep trying to emulate because apparently studies show that that's the best. I don't fuck studies. I don't care. Maybe it's me being in quarantine. Maybe I'm finding my cement foundation like Sharon. I don't care. I'm going to do what I need to do to do this story justice. And if this is one that's four hours long, that's four hours. You don't have to listen to it in one sitting. You can come back to it like a book. You don't read a book all at once. You're not like, oh, it's dinner time. I have to stop reading while I'm done with this book. No, you pause and you come back to it. Consider it like that. And you're welcome. I'm saying that to you and to myself because I feel very empowered right now. Okay. However, I am being serious. I do need to rein it in. However, I'm just not going to skip anything or squeeze this into a two-parter. Forget that. I don't know. I'm going to get you a whole new episode next week. We're going to do a longer one this week. It's fine. It'll be my longest one yet. And you know what? Rightfully so. It feels right. Anyways, I love you guys. Thanks for putting up with me. Also, you're going to hear some mowing soon, probably in the background, because I can't get to the studio right now in quarantine and people are mowing. It's nice out. It's that time of year that I love and hate for different reasons. Like the mowing thing is so annoying. It really just drives me nuts. But again, whatever. Um, Obviously, I lost my spot. Who wouldn't? Okay, so he, Jay, ex-boyfriend, best but best friend basically soulmate jay was definitely one of her soulmates because by the way soulmates don't have to be like a romantic and if they are they don't always have to stay that way so don't don't limit yourself anyone out there um because okay (laughs) again i just can't stop myself what is focusing i'm uh, yeah, I have OCD, but I also have ADHD, if you can't tell. This is the first time I think I've ever said that. It's not a secret, but for all you dummies out there who haven't noticed before, you sure as shit are now. Um, yeah, I have ADHD, and this is a moment where I am definitely struggling. But my uh, dog, Kennedy, I almost said daughter. Well, she is my daughter, but... I feel like I can't come on to you guys that strong yet. I can't show my all my cards, but she's my soulmate and she's my dog. So chill out. Soulmates aren't all about like notebook shit. That's great too. Don't get me wrong, but okay. Here we go. Getting centered, moving on. So Jay comes back and insists, like we said before, on meeting him guess what he becomes friends with Polanski 
and still remains Sharon's best, closest, confident, the number one go-to, Jay. I need, I'm realizing now I need to look you up and see if you're still alive because, oh my God, you're, you're an angel. I just love him too. I love everyone in this story. What can I say? Sharon was the type of person that like, if she did, if you weren't a part of her circle before, um, and you're naturally like her, just like a good fucking person. If you came into her circle and you weren't before, you're going to be a good person because she just is just perfect. She just is. Deal with it. Um, so then Roman later on talks about the fact that Jay was pretty much a lonely and isolated person. Like basically me. <laughs> I know we're in quarantine, so we're all feeling that way. But like my, that's my nature. I like to be alone and I like to just be, I like to be by myself. But I love everyone. It's very confusing for me too. Don't worry. It's extremely confusing for everyone. Um, and he acknowledged the fact that Jay definitely looked at Sharon and himself, Roman, as his family. And I just can't get enough of that. I love it. Real quick, I need to do a break. Whether I do an ad or not remains to be seen. However, I need to take a break because I've been talking for so long and I need to get myself like a little bit of a get your shit together Brit moment. And I don't want you to hear that. So I'll be back. I'm back. I've had some food, quite a bit of it actually. Once I started eating, I couldn't stop. It was like my appetite woke up. I was a bottomless pit. Needless to say, I feel a lot more grounded. There are no promises, but things should go more smoothly from here on out. And it's not that they weren't going smooth before, but you, I think you get what I'm trying to say. So the next thing I want to talk to you guys about is this movie that basically like brought everything to life even more than anything else this movie was so popular when it came out it was like a huge hit and it's also where I get the title of this episode sexy little me there was so much I feel like this was a catalyst like this was a catalyst for Sharon big time in a really interesting way so after this filming and stuff and they stay at the apartment in London and she does the fashion stuff, all that fun, fun crap. Um, they come back to the U S to film another movie. Um, well, she comes back to the U S I should say to film another movie. Don't make waves with Tony Curtis. And I say she, because Roman stays in London, whatever. That doesn't even matter. <laughs> Maybe I'm not as crowded as I thought I was. Oh, stay tuned. So in this movie, she plays the role of Malibu. And the film was intended to capitalize on the popularity of beach movies and music like from the Beach Boys, uh, Jane and Dean, things like that. And her character is basically, okay, so the promote the promoter for this publicly wanted it to be like a kind of known as the Malibu queen of the surf type situation. And in it, she, the movie, she wore little more than a bikini for most of the film, 
whatever, that's fine. However, she was very disappointed with the film and was very sarcastically calling herself sexy little me. Like she would refer to herself as sexy little me. She felt, I think, um, not, what's the word I'm trying to think of? I'm stumbling through this one big time. She wasn't a fan of the, there was no depth to move to the movie. Now I'll tell you, I, this is some of the scenes I watched when I was talking about YouTube earlier, I watched some of this and this isn't the one I was like obsessed with surprisingly, cause I love surfing, but it was just like a meaningless film more for entertainment strictly. Um, I get the sense that she wanted the deep roles. She wanted to be challenged and she wanted to challenge others. And I am here for that. But I'm also like, well, I mean, sometimes you got those other roles that people love, but I get it. She didn't want to be seen as that. And she felt like, I feel like she was probably scared that now this is her third like big role. Um, the biggest one yet. And it's scary as an actor or actress because you get, or even singer, songwriter, create anything creative. You get put into this category and I think she was terrified that she would never see a serious role after this and rightfully so because that's a an actual concern it still is today in Hollywood so I think that's why she was making it very clear right from the get-go I'm I did this movie yes did not like it it wasn't for me I'm not about this whole type of situation and would very pointedly make fun of herself as a sexy little me like I'm just a sex item to make it clear not something she wants to be doing if that makes sense Uh, and so then another little Facebook boost example before the film is released a major publishing campaign happened for Coppertone sunscreen and they featured Sharon so then that happens and then the film opens at first to poor reviews and mediocre ticket sales and Sharon was quoted as confiding to a reporter in quotes it's a terrible movie then she continues sometimes I say things I shouldn't I guess I'm too outspoken I feel like at this point in time the movie at first is like a bust but it ends up not being later on which is sometimes how those things work out and she if you've ever had that experience where everything's going great, you're finally like doing the damn thing. And then all of a sudden you have that situation that turns it the opposite way or make throws it up in the air and no one knows for sure. Or you're questioning. Um, it's not what you thought. And you and you don't have a good sight on the future, so to speak. You kind of, it's like a, what are you going to do moment? Like, we're going to hide the future and the outcome from you. It's going to be a success, but you don't know that yet. How are you going to react? It's like a character test, kind of. And I feel like she was making it known that that's not who she is. That's not her goals. She wants more. She expects more. And uh, I don't fault her for that, to be honest. So then a little bit after that, Roman comes back to the U.S. and was immediately contracted by the head of Paramount Pictures, Robert Evans, to direct and write the screenplay for Rosemary's Baby, which is based on Ira Levin's novel of the same name. Roman later admitted that he had wanted 
Sharon to star in the film and he really hoped that someone would suggest her because he felt that it would be very inappropriate to make the suggestion himself. I get that. However, the producers never did suggest Sharon and Mia Farrow was cast instead. Uh, However, Sharon was obviously a frequent visitor to the set, which makes sense. She was even photographed there by Esquire and those photographs resulted in considerable publicity for both Sharon and the film. Again, makes sense. This is like the whole who you know. It's it's all about who you know and the crowd you run with. And it's just it, everything affects everything. It's why Hollywood is so... Oh, what is the word? Like it is... a It's like a match in a room full of gasoline. And that could go either way at all times. Something like that. Whatever. If you can do something, if you can come up with something better, let me know. (laughs) I'm just trying to make it like relatable. Something that's easily understood for everyone. Um, So yeah, that gets that movie and Sharon publicity. Duh. So then in March of 1967, there's an article about Sharon in Playboy, and it begins with this quote. This is the year that Sharon Tate happens. Yes, it is. It really is. It really, really is. And it actually includes six nude or partially nude photographs that were taken by Roman during the filming of The Fearless Vampire Killers. Tate was optimistic because Eye of the Devil and the Fearless Vampire Killers were each due for release. So she's thinking, great, this is perfect. Like, I can come back from this movie that at first was a bust, turned out to be amazing, um, review-wise, and then one that she didn't really feel in her heart and was terrified that it was going to cement her into that type of role. And then this happens, I mean, it's like, okay, the light at the end of the tunnel, kind of. She had also been signed to play a major role in the film version of Valley of the Dolls, which is one of the all-time bestsellers of movies ever. The film was highly publicized and anticipated. That's a great recipe for success. And Sharon acknowledges that this huge role for her should further her career and she acknowledges that she knows that but she kind of like confides to Roman that she didn't like the book or the script so it's kind of another Malibu queen of the surf situation like oh my god all these people are freaking out they're so excited they're going to be obsessed with it and I I don't care for it guess what girlfriend that's where the acting comes in and she's she's got it she does a great job and that is truly probably one of the hardest things as a person to do something you're passionate about for something you're not passionate about. To play a role that you feel and you relate to is a dream, but sometimes it's for things that you don't. And that is where your true, like that is where the talent comes in every time. Um, Okay. So then Patty Duke, Barbara Parkins and Judy Garland were cast as the other leads. (sighs) Immediately. I'm just like over that. And that might have been what Sharon was thinking. I don't know. But right away, I'm just like, fuck this. I don't want any part of this. I don't want to be competing. Like, I'll compete in the audition. That's it. After that, I don't want to have to worry about, am I going to do this or not? Like, don't. No. I want to be. If you make me comfortable, then I will shine for you is basically what I feel like she was feeling. 
That, by the way, is all speculative. That's like how I would feel. And I could see how it would relate to her, but that's not fact because she's obviously, unfortunately, not here to tell us. But that's kind of the picture I get when I read this. So Susan Hayward replaced Garland a few weeks later when she was dismissed. And the director, Mark Robson, was highly, highly critical of the three principal actresses. So annoying. But according to him, he directed... And this is, by the way, he admits this openly. He directs most of his criticism at Sharon. I, I, I mean, wait, no, 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 hold on. Nope, he did not admit that. Hobson is his, Robson is his name. Patty Duke, she's the one that spills the tea. Thanks, Patty, here for you. Um, we are here for you. Thank you. She says that basically... He was really, really, really hard on all of them, but he really, really reamed Sharon the most. Like she was the scapegoat from the get-go. She also said that later on, Robson continually treated Sharon like an imbecile, which she definitely was not. And she was very attuned and sensitive to this treatment. That's a direct quote, which makes sense. Getting to know Sharon through this research that I would be this, she's definitely an introvert. Okay, let's just get that out in the open. As far as her MBTI type, I'm not positive. I have my suspicions, but I'm not going to talk about that because I don't know. And that's just, it doesn't matter. Any introvert, anyone who is like how she observes and that's how she learns and is very quiet, but also so powerful in her presence to be reprimanded or yelled at or criticized. It's one thing for constructive criticism but to just continually berate and treat somebody like an idiot when they're clearly not and they're sensitive to that I am so shocked that she continued on after this because that would break most introverts for sure Roman later quoted Robson as saying to him that's a great girl you're living with few actresses have her kind of vulnerability she's got a great future really Robson does she because from what everyone is saying and from what all the evidence is showing, you were a real asshole. So kind of, um, <clears throat> this is coming from me only, strictly my own opinion. Get fucked. Am I right? During production of The Valley of the Dolls, there were several interviews in which Sharon pretty much made it known that she felt a connection with her character, Jennifer North, who was an aspiring actress admired only for her body. So here's my thinking. Finally, a role where she's just like, I feel this. Like, I relate to this. But here's the thing. Without that Malibu surf movie, she wouldn't have had that experience necessarily. So it's like even the shitty things you go through or the things that you think don't matter, they all, everything matters. But it, it, how it matters might look different. But that's the thing. Without that experience, she would never have this strong connection like she does for this new movie, Valley of the Dolls. And I think that's amazing and beautiful. And I want to say that I'm bringing that up because I want to remind you people that, yeah, this is true for her. This is true for everyone. It really is. The silver lining's always there. There's always a gift if you accept it. <sighs> And I'm not trying to be like, 
like fancy and positive. I'm, but I also am just being real and it happens to be positive. Think about it. Without that experience that she was so upset by and the title of this film is, I mean, not film. <laughs> Can you tell I'm getting a little confused about the fact I'm not sharing. I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm just like getting really into this story. Um, the title of this episode, Sexy Little Me, wouldn't even be a title because it wouldn't have been a thing if she didn't have that experience and she wouldn't have related so strongly to this character and then this movie done such a badass job, which not only because... I don't think that because of that previous movie, that's the reason she did so well, but I do think that it's a really, 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 really strong anchor. That's all I wanted to say about that. Uh, There are some magazines that commented that she was, Sharon, was viewed similarly and as the character. So, like, other magazines picked up on this and, like, thought the same thing, made the same connections. And Look published an unfavorable article about the three lead actresses describing Tate as a, in quotes, (laughs) I'm so mad just reading this, a hopelessly stupid and vain starlet. Wow, damn. The fact that you can print that in a magazine at that time, do they, I don't read magazines. Do they still, would they still say something like that? So crude and just like rude? Is that, I would, can you sue for that? I feel like you can. I'm not saying that that needs to happen. I'm just, I'm shocked. Then again, this is in the past, but still. Oh my God, relax. Look, roll what? Look, look, chill the fuck out. So not, that is not cool. So Tate, Duke, and Parkins developed a close friendship, which I feel like you'd have to when you're dealing with an asshole like Robson. Um, and this friendship continued long after the completion of the film. That's when you know, just saying. Um, during the filming, however, uh, Sharon confided to Parkins that she was madly in love with Roman and is quoted as saying, yes, there's no doubt that Roman is the man in my life. And that was quoted specifically in New York Sunday News. So here's the thing. Sharon loved this movie, I think. She promoted the film like crazy. She loved it. It was, she was passionate about it. That's that's exactly what I was trying to say. Her passion showed when she's promoting it, like she believed in it. She really, really did. She also commented all the time on her admiration for Lee Grant, and that's whom she got to play uh, several dramatic scenes with. So she got to work with him and was very inspired by him, basically. This is a quote from her. Uh, She said, I learned a great deal about acting in Valley of the Dolls, particularly my scenes with Lee Grant. She knows what acting is all about, and everything she does, from little mannerisms to delivering her lines, is pure professionalism. Side note, I realize now, got ahead of myself, and I was talking about Lee Grant as if that was a man, and I said he about a hundred times. Lee Grant is a woman. Just giving you the facts. As best I can here at Earth to Brit. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay, I know my sarcasm is like so hard to pick up on sometimes, but that was sarcasm my sarcasm. So get used to it if you're not already. Now, this next quote from her. I love Sharon Tate so very much. 
before I loved her, before I even started researching her, I just had that, like, I'm telling you again, that connection was there. It was almost like a long lost sister. I didn't need to know a damn thing about her to know that I, I connect with her. Then I learn about her and it's like explosions everywhere. She is just mm, amazing. So this next paragraph I'm going to read to you, there is a journalist interviewing her about one of her nude scenes <laughs> and her reply is standard for a queen she says <clears throat> i have no qualms about it at all i don't see any difference between being stark naked or fully dressed if it's part of the job and it's done with meaning and intention i honestly don't understand the big fuss made over nudity and sex in films it's silly on TV, the children can watch people murdering each other, which is a very unnatural thing, but they can't watch two people in the very natural process of making love. Now, really, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Mic drop, papers slam down, I can't even. I can't. I got to take a, br a break real quick. Um, I can't with that. Sh she's perfect. She's absolutely perfect. And I feel her fierceness. Same, Sharon. Oh my God. Forget the break. I can't. Oh, okay. I got to just stop talking. I'm. It sounds like I'm obsessed with her. I'm not. I just really fucking love her. And she's saying this in the 60s, you guys. And early 70s. No, no, not early 70s. Nope. Because she didn't even make it to the 70s, which is the worst part about all this oh I hate this I love this and I hate it so much maybe you're sensing through the microphone and in your ears if you're wearing earbuds or through your speakers however you're listening you are probably sensing my dilemma this whole entire time on why I wanted to do it so badly but also didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole because it's both of those things it's love hate it is just a mm, it's a thing <sighs> okay so then we're going to go back to the film, uh, The Fearless Vampire Killers, the one that she met Roman on. Um, an edited version is released and Roman expresses his disgust at Ransahoff for butchering his film. <laughs> so it comes out in this perfectionist, which I'm not hating on because I am one as well, um, he's fucking pissed and he makes it known publicly and it's just god that cannot be good because Ransoff is obviously embedded in th throughout all of Sharon's career so far the bigger roles anyways has been there it's just not ideal especially if you don't like conflict Sharon's probably like great this is just perfect just what I need <laughs> again <laughs> speculation but but I mean come on it's it's probably the truth Oh, gosh. So in Newsweek, he called it a witless travesty. And uh, it actually ended up not being profitable, which is strange. Uh, Sharon's performance somehow, somehow was largely ignored in reviews. And when she was mentioned, it was usually in relation to her nude scenes. Again, the girl had a reason to be fearful of being cast into that, which every woman did every woman does still it's it's like hello we're 2020 now and we're still doing this shit yeah Sharon unfortunately are and she's probably not looking down on us with respect let me just say that 
Anyways, um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, then, like, this is a huge year for her. When Playboy said that the year of Sharon happens, it's fucking so on point. Sorry, by the way, this is a very explicit episode. They all are, but this one's a little extra. I'm trying, but it's my podcast, so bear with me. Um, so Eye of the Devil is also released, and Metro Goldwyn Mayer attempts to build interest in Sharon with its press release describing her as one of the screen's most exciting new personalities. So they like they do her solid good. <sighs> God damn, I don't understand. The film failed to find an audience, and most reviews were indifferent. Not praising or condemning it. Tepid water. It's like a, a milk toast. Isn't that what they say? Milk toast handshake? Like, don't shake my hand at all then. I'd rather it not happen if you're not going to have any reaction. Even if it's a bad one, at least you have a reaction, you know? You don't want you don't want that. That's not the goal, but have a freaking reaction already, you know? And I feel like she's probably extremely frustrated because this just keeps happening. And she, it did, she did not deserve it because she really is... I mean, she's just go again, watch the YouTube videos, you guys stop already. If you haven't done it, please do. I'm not, I'm sick of saying it. Okay. Um, oh my God. I can't. No wonder I'm like reading this for the first time. I skipped right over this. I did my subconsciously. I knew like, you don't want to read this, Brit. It's going to make you mad. The New York Times wrote that one of the few highlights was Sharon's chillingly beautiful but expressionless performance. Get fucked. And listen, this isn't me being biased. Go on YouTube. I'm not kidding you. Just do it already. She is amazing. I'm so annoyed at people not realizing what they have until it's lost. And it just it, it pisses me off. Okay. So back to the all eyes on Sharon Tate. You guys remember that? That little face, the first original Facebook boost, if you will. Uh, that documentary was used to publicize the film, as we know. It was a 14-minute situation, and it consisted of a number of scenes depicting Sharon filming Eye of the Devil, like dancing in nightclubs, all that, all the filming, sightseeing around London, and it even contained a brief interview with her. So in this interview, she's asked about her acting ambitions and she replies, in quotes, I don't fool myself. I can't see myself doing Shakespeare. Basically, she's like keeping it real. Like, I'm not saying I can do something that I absolutely don't believe in or something that people can't relate to and make it come to life, which I mean, listen, I love Shakespeare. So that does Sharon, I'm going to have to disagree on that. But I get what she's trying to say is. She, basically, she's walking a very fine line saying, listen, I believe in myself, but I'm not going to try to do something that I don't believe in. And that's my take on that. Let me know if you have a different one. I, I'm sure I truly am curious to know if you have a different take. I'd love to hear it. That is a genuine comment, by the way. Uh, she also spoke of her hopes of finding a like a genre that she can really get into in comedy and in other interview interviews, she talks about her desire to become a light comedian in the Carol Lombard style, which a couple of the clips I saw on YouTube were very serious. And then some were funny. And she was funny, like genuinely, naturally funny. And 
I didn't even realize that until just now reading this because I thought to myself, wow, that's really cool that she can do that too. And here, here, now I know why is because she had that goal like that, which if you have that goal, I feel like it's in you. So it makes sense that it came across so naturally. Um, She also discussed the type of contemporary actress she wanted to emulate and explained that there were two in particular that she was influenced by. Faye Dunaway and Catherine Deneuve. Deneuve? Deneuve? I feel like such an idiot right now because I know how to say this and I can't Oh, and then she says it again. So I'm just going to butcher it from here on out. So when she's talking about Catherine, she says, I'd like to be an American Catherine. She plays beautiful, sensitive, deep parts with a little bit of intelligence behind them. Sharon, I want to tell you, you can do that and more. I believe in you. Um, we're going to finish this last section, not last section. Nope, we're not done yet. But this section for this last part about those films. And then take a very quick break. So later in the year, Valley of the Dolls opens to almost straight across the board negative reviews. And I want to throw myself against the wall because why is this happening? How? How? It's crazy because all these things later on are just so big. And it's like, Again, you don't know what you have until it's gone. <sighs> Whatever. I wasn't there, so <laughs> I'm getting so mad about something I have negative control on. Later in that year, blah, 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 that was done. Um, Bosley Crowther, don't know who you are, but he wrote in the New York Times, in quotes, all a fairly respectful admirer of movies can do is laugh at it and turn away. People are so mean. Again, I have to ask, are they still like this? Is it still super mean like that? I'm not I'm not saying lie and like make up stuff or don't hide your opinion, but oh my god, it just seems so crude. Uh Newsweek said that the film in quotes has no more sense of its own ludicrousness than a <laughs> Oh my god. Wait, you guys. Okay. Let me try this again. The film has no more sense of its own ludicrousness than a village idiot stumbling in manure. Um, okay. (laughs) It's so mean. However, a later article read, in quotes, astoundingly photogenic, infinitely curvaceous, Sharon Tate is one of the most smashing young things to hit Hollywood in a long time. Okay, so again, focusing on that, not her acting, whatever. We're going to slide right past that. I'm not going to give it any more attention. The three lead actresses were castigated in numerous publications, including the Saturday Review, which wrote, 10 years ago, Parkins, Duke, and Tate would more likely have been playing the hat check girls than a movie queen. They are totally lacking in style, authority, or charm. Okay, just holding in my thoughts here, trying to take some deep breaths. The Hollywood Reporter provided some positive comments, such as Sharon Tate emerges as the film's most sympathetic character. William H. Daniels' photographic caress of her faultless face and enormous absorbent eyes is stunning. So like a backhanded compliment, like Sharon's one of the better ones. This is my interpretation. Sharon's one of the better characters 
However, William's picture of her, like the way he caressed her face that is so perfect with his photographic caress. <laughs> I can't. Like, what the fuck are you saying? And her enormous orbit, absorbent eyes is stunning. Giving him credit for, I mean, am I going to make it through this? Is this almost done? All this bullshit? Okay. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times praised Tate as, in quotes, a wonder to behold. Don't get excited, you guys. If you've noticed, you get excited about, oh my God, they're finally going to notice how great she is. Uh, Hold your horses, because after describing the dialogue in one scene as, okay, so wait, I said that a little bit weird. After he says that, he continues to describe the dialogue in one of the scenes as, (laughs) The most offensive and appalling vulgarity ever thrown up by any civilization. And concludes that, in quotes, I will be unable to take her any more seriously as a sex symbol than Raquel Welch. Now I'm really throwing my papers down. I am more composed now. We'll see how long this lasts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think it all kind of picks up from here. Which, either way, I'm not going to let that bother me those people judging and just mostly men too, like get lost, right? Anyone else? Okay. So here we are in late of 1967. So rewind, rewind to a time I wasn't even around for. Unfortunately, this was, I feel like the generation I should have been born in. Hell, maybe I was, maybe I was there in a past life. Who knows? It feels like I was for sure. But so it's late 1967. I swear I can talk. I do know how to speak English. (laughs) That remains to be proven, but eventually you will see like, oh, she does understand how to speak. Okay. Sharon and Roman come back to London. As you remember, he's got a place there, so it makes sense. Plus, there's always, like, filming there. It's it's really interesting how they're always going to different countries. I get it. It's great. I love it. I love that so much. And understandably, they were, a lot of the times, the front page news of newspapers and magazines there. Uh, in In this whole publicity with Sharon and Roman, she was depicted as being untraditional and modern and was quoted as saying that couples should live together before marrying. Listen, sister, I feel you. I hear you. Just, I'm so grateful to know that people, even in 67, were smart and had a brain and weren't afraid to say like common sense shit like that. Now, here's the thing. If you don't want to live together, fine. It's not like you should or shouldn't. But like, let's stop saying it's kind of like right now. So back then it was like, you should live together before you get married. Now it's like, and maybe this is not just me, but like I might be the minority. When people are like, oh, you're pregnant. You should get married. What? Honest to God, JC and I were engaged and I was secretly but not so secretly like I'm okay if I get pregnant right now I kind of would prefer that like fuck everyone you can get pregnant before you get married and you don't have to get married just because you have a kid together I mean I cannot take the mind that mindset I digress I'm gonna get way off on a tangent and that's 
I can't afford that right now. However, I feel strongly about that and we will probably touch on that another time. So look forward to that. (laughs) Or don't, whatever. Um, So then, speaking of marriage, coincidentally, they were married in Chelsea, London on January 20th, 1968 with considerable publicity. No shit. Roman was dressed in what they called Edwardian finery, which if you look up their wedding photos, it once you see it, you're like, okay, yep, got it. If you can't picture it off the top of your head, look that up, Google real quick, it comes right up, you will understand. And Sharon was wearing a white mini dress, which I love that. I just love, I love that. Um, yeah, so they move into his house off Eaton Square in Belgravia, London. Photographer Peter Evans, who was obviously there for the situation, the marriage, all that fun stuff, described them as the imperfect couple. They were the Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford of our time. Cool, nomadic, talented, and nicely shocking. I love that description, and I love him for saying it. Thank you, Peter. Sharon uh, actually talks about wanting a traditional marriage, but Roman was promiscuous and he remained promiscuous and described her attitude to his infidelity as, in quotes, Sharon's big hang up. Okay, Roman, I'm trying to paint you in a good light here, but you're being an asshole a little bit. Um, He reminds her that she promised not to change him. So Sharon accepts his conditions, if that's what they are, but she would confide to her friends that she hoped that he would change, which, listen, every girl out there, I don't care what you say, you don't have to admit it, but you know deep down, we've all been there, it's like a thing, you want to, that bad boy, you want to change them, and you believe that you will be the one to do it, and and I think it's because every once in a while that shit does happen, and you see it, and you're like, it's possible, and that's all the fire, that's all the fuel you need. Walk away, but also their story is so, and he really did love her, and you know what? Another thing, aside from the marriage topic, and living together, and having babies, and marriage, and all that stuff, I can't get into this too much, but... This is going to sound crazy. Love is love. Like there are people out there. There's a podcast I listened to over a year ago and the way they described it. Oh, I wish I could remember what it was. It was my jaw was dropped. As usual, I was in the shower. That's where the life changing podcasts happen for me for real. And I could not believe the way it was described so freaking perfectly. Although I don't know that I could do it. I I, I see it. I see the logic. It's logical. Why one person? Like you should love, if you love somebody, you can love more than one person. And it's it's not a bad thing, but like it is so taboo that it's so difficult for even my open mind to see how it would work. But I don't think that he's wrong or her necessarily. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Because I can't get into it. I can't get into it without explaining myself. And that's seriously, that could be not even a whole other episode, a whole other podcast. How many times have I said that in this episode alone? A hundred. Um, okay, so then Peter Evans actually was able to quote Sharon as saying, we have a good arrangement. Roman lies to me and I pretend to believe him. All right, whatever you've got to do for real. 
Okay, so Roman is at this point, probably because he's pissed about the whole movie thing with Ronsdahoff, is begging and urging and pushing Sharon to end her association with him, with Martin, not with Roman. And this is, I mean, Sharon, girl, she begins to put less importance on her career. Um, okay, this is going to be very confusing for you. It's very confusing for me. And it makes me want to punch Roman right in the freaking face so hard. So he's like whining to her about probably because he's like we said, so pissed off about his whatever upset situation he has with Martin. And it's like, I want you to stop associating with him. So then she begins to basically like back off the movie scene and kind of let her career not take center stage. And then Roman's like, I want to be married to a hippie, not a housewife. Dude, what what the fuck do you want? First of all, make it clear. Second of all, even if you make it clear, she doesn't have to do that. Oh, he... I don't hate him, believe it or not, but like this section that I'm talking to you about is very, it's very hard not to want to punch him right in his face. Seriously, what an asshole. He's acting like an asshole. Okay, it's fine. Whatever. So they go back to Los Angeles and very quickly become a part of this social group that includes some of the most successful young people in the film industry. Here are some of the names. Warren Betty. Jacqueline Bissett, Leslie Karen, Joan Collins, Mia Farrow, Jane Fonda, Peter Fonda, Lawrence Harvey, Steve McQueen, Joanna Petet, uh, Peter Sellers, and then older film stars like Yul Brynner, Kirk Douglas, Henry Fonda, and Danny Kaye. Some musicians they become very close friends with are Jim Morrison, The Mamas and the Papas, and record producer Terry Melcher, and his girlfriend Candace Bergen. Oh my God, can you hear my child screaming in the background? It's like a murder scene happening in my own house. That wasn't funny. I wasn't trying to, that was not good timing on my part. I'll admit it. Oh my God, I can't record like this. You guys, is this almost done? Are we done with quarantine yet? Because I'm about to run into traffic. (sighs) Oh my God, okay. So real quick, I want to point out to you the name Terry Mulcher. Remember that name. If you don't know its importance right now, you have not dived into this like I thought you have because that is everything. He didn't do anything wrong, but he is a huge part of this puzzle and he didn't even do a damn thing, which is like the worst, most frustrating, not most, one of the most frustrating parts because it's all very frustrating. want to do a quick shout out to um, you. Yeah, that's right. You as my listener, my fan. Thank you for putting up with all of the bullshit. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. I say it all the time. It's my podcast. I can do what I want. Yeah, I can. But I can do that because you guys are so supportive. So seriously, thank you for putting up with everything late releases, random missings, which has only happened twice. I pat on the back. I'm just saying it could happen a lot more. <laughs> uh, cartoons in the background, a screaming child in the background, listening to my kid come on because he just cannot not record with me. You're the real deal and you're why I do this. I am so 
obsessed with you. I love you. Thank you. This is for you. Okay. Uh, so Jay, her bestie, for real, they seriously were the best of friends. And I just love that so much. He was also in that group of frequent companions. He was always there. Or who are we kidding? He's literally her best friend. Of course he's there. Uh, Roman's, like Roman's friends, which were really both of theirs, but you guys, if you are married or ha have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you, you all become friends, but they were their friends first in quotes. Does that make sense? Um, that would be <laughs> one of the most published names ever. Wojcik Frakowski. I'm going to call him Woj. Uh, and that's actually someone that, oh, speaking of Polish, that is a friend that Roman had known since he was young in Poland, which fun fact, now is probably the time to tell you Roman is from Poland. <laughs> I'm really killing it, aren't I? <laughs> I just I crack myself up. I really do. Uh, Woj's girlfriend, Abigail Folger, was the coffee heiress. She was the daughter. Yeah, it, you get it. Folger in your cup. That girl, the daughter. So those two remember those names as well, because that's going to come into play later also. So Sharon and Roman mo move into the Chateau Marmot in Los Angeles for a few months until they arranged to lease Patty Duke's home on Summit Ridge Drive in Beverly Hills during the last part of 1968. So their house was pretty much always full of strangers, basically, and Sharon kind of mentioned that the casual atmosphere was part of the free spirit of the times. And she claimed that she didn't mind who came into her home and her motto was live and let live again. We, I, I just can't not, I, I just love her so much because I'm the same. Seriously, who cares? However, I'm also like, my doors are locked even when I'm inside. So a little different, but I think that's kind of with the times because we're talking late 60s. Shit was a free-for-all. It really, really was. Uh, Sharon's close friend, Leslie Karen, uh, one time she did... Okay, so this is kind of interesting. So as I said, the late 60s, crazy times, just a shit show, free-for-all. Well, when that's the case and your friend makes this comment, it's kind of alarming. So speaking of that, uh, Leslie Karen says once that she believed that the Polanskis were too trusting in quotes to the point of recklessness and she mentioned a lot of times that it alarmed her she was very alarmed by it in the summer of 1968 uh Sharon began the wrecking crew which was released in 1969 it was a comedy in which she played Freya Carlson who was an accident prone spy who was also a romantic interest for the star Dean Martin, who was playing the character Matt Helm. She performed her own stunts and was taught martial arts by Bruce Lee. Badass, right? Finally, finally, you guys, this film was successful. And it brought Sharon strong reviews with many reviewers praising her comedic performance, which if you remember earlier, she talked about that being one of her goals. Turns out, girlfriend has got a knack for that. And she, again, 
when you really like something, I feel like you're naturally good at it. The two danced together and she nailed it. The New York Times critic, Vincent Canby, criticized the film, but not Sharon. He even wrote in quotes, the only nice thing is Sharon Tate, a tall, really great looking girl. Now, here's the thing. I, I say that like, like, okay, can we talk about her acting? Because that's the whole fucking point. But you take what you get, especially when it's late 60s, not an excuse, but sometimes you just have to not stress about it because people are going to be people. And it's still an issue in 2020. So I get it. Whatever. I'm just saying. Finally, she was noticed, even though it, whatever. It was also for her acting. It had to have be, had to have been, but however they portrayed it, I'm not here to completely rip that apart. He also commented that he, oh wait, no, 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 not him. Martin, the director, he commented that he intended to make another Matt Helm film and that he wanted Sharon to keep her role, like come back for that too. Unfortunately, that will not happen. We're going to find out why. Obviously, you know why, but it's just, it sucks. Uh, around the same time, Tate was known around the world, like, and especially LA, she's coming, Hollywood, all that stuff. She's really getting the reputation as a promising newcomer. Listen, she's not new, but whatever. Well, again, we'll slide right past that. <laughs> Take what we can get in a way. She was nominated for a Golden Globe Award as New Star of the Year actress for her performance in Valley of the Dolls. And she placed fourth behind Mia Farrow, Judy Geeson, 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 whatever, and Catherine Houghton, Houghton, oh, you guys, they're killing me, for a Golden Laurel Award as the year's most promising newcomer. She was also runner-up to Lynn Redgrave in the motion picture Herald's poll for The Star of Tomorrow, in which box office drawing power was the main criterion. These results kind of gave a very clear indication that her career was beginning to accelerate and she ended up negotiating a fee of $150,000 for her next film. Get it, girl! Her career is finally taking off and she's getting the recognition that she deserves, which if you're out there doing your thing, you probably know the feeling of doing it and doing it well and nobody notices, nobody cares, or maybe you're lucky and that's not true. Either way, finally, people are seeing her and saying, hey, I see you. I like it. That's a great feeling. And then she is pregnant. So we're gonna talk about the year of 1968 when she becomes pregnant, like I just said. And then at this time, at the same time, it was like a whirlwind, but also great timing. Her and Roman moved to 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles. And they do that for the first, like, I'm sure it took them a little bit, but day one was February 15th, 1969. Okay. So do you remember that name I talked about earlier, Terry Melcher and his girlfriend, Candace Bergen? Well, I wanted you to remember that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the house that they are moving into right now on Cielo Drive 
that used to be Terry Melcher and Candace's house. And again, it's one of the reasons, well, I didn't say this before, but I'll tell you now. If you don't already know this, I, I mean, I can't keep it a secret. It's common knowledge. The whole reason that Sharon Tate and and others were murdered that night, that they were murdered, was because of the fact that Melcher lived in that house and Charles Manson had some beef with him. He didn't know that Terry didn't live in the house anymore. He didn't care. He was just like, I don't like this house because I remember this guy. And this is, again, speculation, but he was just like, I don't like this. I don't like this house because of this guy, whether he lives there now or not. Don't give a fuck. Anyone who lives there, they've got to go. They can pay for it, so to speak. Terrifying, right? Um, so yeah, they're moving into this house. Great. And it's actually really, I looked this house up. Gorgeous. And I'm kind of alarmed at how well the movie Halter Skelter, from what I remember when when I saw it for the first time and the only time my senior year, which was in 2005, 2006, they nailed it. Like the scene, when I looked at these pictures, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. Oh, just, I can't. Because it's a true story. It's not like something for fun or a book. It, this is real. And it's, that's why I, I just can't do it. I cannot get too excited about that because it's, it's so sad. Um, hold on real quick. I need to, oh, okay. So Sharon and Roman had, before they moved into this house, they had been there several times. So when they did find out that it was available, Sharon was thrilled and she actually referred to it to everyone around her, all of her close friends, as her love house. Sharon, I've been there. I'm currently recording in mine. I get it. I mean, if you've bought a house before, you probably know that feeling like when you just know oh, it's it's a great thing. So once they're in their new home, they do not slow down on their parties and their hosting of friends and family and strangers, large groups. And some of those people within that group, they would still worry about the strange, like I said, strangers, people who would, Atticus, I know, I love you too, bud, show up like randomly. Sharon was not worried because she was encouraged by the positive reviews of her performance and hold on wait a second oh i think maybe she was like flying high on cloud nine atticus seriously stop you guys i'm doing everything i can to bring this to you in time on time lord help me i can't even it's so late and i'm so tired do you need to throw up again Okay, guys, I'll be right back. Pray for me. Um, where was I? Deep breaths. <laughs> Try not to have a panic attack again. So they get into this new home that is 
Sharon's love house. Can't get enough of that. And some of their friends are still concerned about all the the strangers that they allow to just show up randomly, even when they're not having parties. Um, Sharon, however, was like not even that was not even on her radar. She didn't give a care at all. She was so excited about finally getting all these great reviews about her comedic performances and decided to already focus her attention on 12 plus one which was released in 1969 she's like this is my next project going for it while all of this is happening in the background people showing up that they don't know whatever she she's like old news that's yesterday I don't care I've got my eyes on the prize I feel that girl I feel that however I also am from 2020 which it's still fucked up don't you worry it still is bad but not like the late 60s early 70s I mean it was a free-for-all so a little bit of a difference there whatever okay So basically, the reason she wanted that part so badly is she wanted to work and co-star with Orson Welles. In March of 1969, she traveled once again back to Italy to begin filming. And at the same time, Roman went to London to work on The Day of the Dolphin, which was released in 1973. I find that so fascinating that like, a lot of it is focused in London for him, a couple for her, but his. But that's why he's in, he has an apartment there. It's almost like they worked it out beforehand. I don't know. And something I'm realizing as I'm reading this, like, shit, maybe. So back to Woj. That's my nickname for him, Furkowski. And then Folger, Abby, you know, Folger in your cup, that one. Um, <coughs> excuse me. They moved into the house that the Polanskis just moved into, but then they both took off to two different countries. So those two moved in probably to just take care of everything. Why not? They probably stayed there all the time anyways. It, what's the difference? So once she was finished filming 12 plus one, Sharon came back and... No, she did not. She went and joined Polanski in London. She actually, so there's this famous photo that she posed for in their apartment in London for photographer Terry O'Neill, basically doing casual domestic scenes like opening baby gifts, completing a series of glamour shots, like beauty shots for British magazine Queen. Again, okay, I see you, London. She is a queen. Uh, So then she does come back from London at this point. I skipped a couple steps. Reverse. Here we are. She comes back from London to Los Angeles on July 20th of 1969. (laughs) Again, we're going to talk about a queen on the Queen Elizabeth II. I love this so much, you guys. I did not plan that. Um, Atticus, if you could seriously back up, you're, get back. You're not coming up here. 
I don't even, I'm not religious, but I'm about to pray. Lord, grant me the strength to get through this recording that is so important to me. Also, grant me the strength to not throw myself into traffic or lose my goddamn mind. Because I'm hanging by a thread and the thread is very, very thin. It's the thinnest thread I've ever seen. I cannot do this alone and I feel alone. Okay, you're back for more. Get back, Atticus. You've got your blanket. Lay down. I'm literally trying to wrap this up and this is one of the most important episodes of my entire life. And you would not believe... Listen, Sharon is not rolling over in her grave, I assure you, because she... If what is... if Okay, stop. If what I believe is true, she is looking down on me, probably helping me out. And she knows that I am doing my goddamn best and I want nothing more than to bring this to justice. Can you lay down for real? Lay down. You have a blanket, pillows, everything. I can't. I tried to let you out. You didn't want it. Go. I'm going to cry. Okay. Thank you. I love you too. You're you're bumping consistently into the microphone. Go lay down. Please. Right here. You want your blankie? Stop. If you're listening right now and think that this is planned... I kind of want to say fuck you and give you the middle finger, two of them. (laughs) I have, I say this every week, but it's true. It's almost like I need to stop saying it. So this is the last time I've done everything. I I have killed myself to bring this to you. And here we are. So I'm going to stop saying that because I think that I am like the secret. Like I'm just bringing it onto myself. Bro, your blanket's right here. I just showed it to you. Figure it out. Send help. But actually, just send wine or something. Fuck. Send something stronger at this point. Okay. He's climbing into a chair he's never touched before. I can't do this. I don't know if I can handle this, you guys. (sighs) Okay. The only reason I'm not going to let anyone edit this out, including myself, is because I feel like we're all in this situation in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not the same. Maybe you're not recording in the middle of your living room. Maybe you're not whatever. But we, we all know the feeling I'm feeling right now, which is basically like a drowned rat who just doesn't even stand a chance. Okay. So she comes home on July 20th of 1969 on the Queen Elizabeth II or the Queen Elizabeth II. However you want to say that, same thing. Roman was supposed to come back on August 12th just in time for the birth of their son. And until that time, he asked Woj, Furkowski and 
uh, Abby Folger to stay in the house with Sharon until he did come back, which they probably would have anyways. I'm going to try to get my my huge boy to settle the fuck down, and then I'm going to come back with the part that I just don't even want to talk about, but it is what it is. <sighs> Unfortunately, it is time to get to the part that makes this story so famous that makes this story such a story the murders and yes i did say murders plural uh like i've said several times i know that most of you if not all of you have heard about this case and i have a feeling you know more about this case than you realize because i knew nothing about it but i knew more than i realized simply because of watching helter skelter in high school and filling in those blanks and and doing this research has just been so not fun but like fascinating like there's so much and there's still so much that I have to learn about it that it's just like one of those things that you just there's all even though it happened so long ago there's always new things coming out it feels like anyways these murders were committed by Tex Watson Susan Atkins and Patricia Cranwinkle (laughs) I have to say her last name slow otherwise I really mess it up under the direction of the one and only Charles Manson. So the, this was a cult, basically. And they were most famously known as the Charles Manson family. Or the Manson family. And so they also lived on this ranch called Spawn Ranch, which is just eerie. <laughs> it's very strange and very, like, cults, man. They're just fascinating in their own right. So... Watson drives Atkins, Krenwinkle, and a name I haven't mentioned yet because she wasn't a part of the murder. Augie. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Oh yeah? Green? Yeah. Okay, hey, watch the movie. I need to finish, okay? Thank you. Your drink's over there on Dad's iPad. Can you grab it? I really need to finish this. Okay, seriously? This is, by the way, the fifth time I've tried to record this specific section, and I just, I'm not going to do this over again for the sixth time. So, here we are. Um, What was I even saying? Welcome to life, right? Okay, so they lived on the ranch, crazy whatever. So, Watson drives these people. Oh, Linda Kasabian. She did not actually perform any of the killing, but she is an important part of this story. Just a FYI. So they drive from the ranch to the residence on Cielo Drive. Fun fact, Charles Manson was actually a would-be musician, and he was trying several times to get a recording contract with record producer, remember this guy, Terry Melcher. That's freaking right who was a previous renter of the house with musician Mark Lindsay and Melcher's girlfriend, Candace Bergen. So those three used to live at this house, as we know. Now, Roman and Sharon live at this house. If you can see where this is going, I mean, oh, terrifying, right? So Melcher had apparently snubbed Manson, and that was not a good idea because, as we know, Manson was not sane in any way, shape, or form. And... Basically, that's the only reason they decided he told them to go to this house. He was the boss, and he said, go to this house. Didn't even care who lived there anymore. 
simply because it was he knew that Maltry used to live there. He had been to parties there. Remember those parties I talked about where people would show up and it was concerning because no one really cared. Well, it wasn't just the Polanski's doing that. Melcher was doing that too. I feel like a lot of people were. That's kind of the times, like we've said before. It was the time of love, hippies, all that. So of course, of course, no one locked their doors. I guarantee it. Just ugh, makes me cringe. So that was just some background. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Tex Watson took Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to, in quotes, that house where Melcher used to live because Manson had instructed them to direct, quote, totally destroy everyone in it and to do it as gruesome as you can. Okay. I am. It's all said and done. I don't know if you know this or not. Charles Manson passed away in prison. But I, th- that is terrifying. Like, that gives me chills every time I can. Oh, it's so scary because it's a true story. And there are people out there like this. Oh, okay, so he also told the women to do whatever Watson instructed them. Typical asshole. <laughs> so Krenwinkel was one of the early family members and had met Dennis Wilson, one of the Beach Boys, when he picked her up hitchhiking. That's just a random fact. I'm not even sure why I'm telling you that or why it's in here. Whatever. So the occupants, as we know at this house now, are Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. However, Roman was still in London. um, And at this time, Sharon is eight and a half months pregnant. And also there is her BFF, Jay Sebring. And then Polanski's friend and aspiring screenwriter, Again, words, right? Woj, remember him, Frakowski? And then Frakowski's girlfriend, Abigail Folger, who, like I said, yes, she is that Folger, heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune, daughter of Peter Folger. Folger's in your cup. You know, everyone knows that jingle. So yeah, he was, Rowan was in Europe working on a film project. And then this is some really just like that episode I did, Chance, where it's like people barely missing death. And like for whatever reason, if you ever have like that feeling to not do something or to do something, always follow it because this kind of stuff always comes out afterwards, after anything, murder, any accident, stuff like that. It's really just wild. Uh, Music producer Quincy Jones, who was a friend of Jay's, he had actually planned to join them all that evening, but ended up not going. No reason given, just ended up not going. He freaking lucked out for sure. Jay had also invited Steve McQueen to the party at Tate's on the night of the murders. Really, it wasn't like a party party. She's eight and a half months pregnant. I mean, the girl likes to have fun, obviously, but she's not. I mean, she's eight and a half months pregnant. If you've never been pregnant, just trust me. She is eight and a half months pregnant. This was not a crazy party. I promise. I am willing to put myself on the line and guarantee that. <laughs> just saying. Um. So yeah, Steve McQueen's invited and McQueen said that he invited his girlfriend to come along. Here's the thing. His girlfriend was like, I'd rather just have a night at home. She just wanted to stay in. So they did. Lucked out, right? So this specific house, like we said, was chosen because both Watson and Manson had been there 
on at least one other occasion, sometimes more. And so Watson was very familiar with the layout. Also added bonus, Charles Manson had a grudge against Melcher, even though I don't know if he knew that he didn't live there anymore, or I, I really don't think he cared because the way he said, do it to everyone in the house, do it as bad as you can. I don't think he cared. He just picked that house because of what had happened. Like clearly his synapses are misfiring because that doesn't even make sense. So they get there just past midnight on August 9th, 1969. Watson, you guys, I can't take this. It's seriously terrifying. Watson climbs a telephone pole near the entrance gate and he cuts the phone line to the house. That's right. If you're not terrified yet, like, just wait. So the murderers backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the house and walked up to the house so that they obviously wouldn't be heard or seen coming. And there's a Google video, a YouTube video that they do Google Earth Maps and like he drives and shows you and goes up to the house and everything. And it's so eerie and creepy and it's not as close to the ranch as I, as I thought, I assumed it was. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a hike. It's just weird. It, it's knowing that that's the route they took and in the history behind it. And he's there with the camera. You're, you're following as if you're in the vehicle with them. It's really, really neat. Um, and I say that lightly because it is neat, but it obviously not cool that this happened, but it's really, I'm going to try to add that link too. But at this point, it's all the links I want to give you are, I'm going to need a whole other page for that, but I'll do it because why not? You don't have to click them. But if you want any of this information, if you want to go through the research I've done, do it. I'll give you the information and you, it's worth it. Trust me. So they drive there, leave the car at the bottom after cutting the lines and walk up just to be even sneakier like they're not messing around so they thought at first that the gate might be electrified or have an alarm on it so they climbed a brushy embankment that's just off to the right of the gate and then that's how they got in it's again creepy how stupid people are but how smart they are at the same time does that make sense they're thinking of everything, but they're also like, why, what do you think about what you're actually doing? Let's look at the big picture here. What the fuck? Seriously, I just can't understand. Um, so headlights approach them from within that property, which is kind of like it at an angle. And so Watson tells everyone, well, the women, cause you know, he's the boss and the women have to listen to him, whatever, um, to lie down in the bushes and so instead of just himself also lying down in the bushes and letting it pass, it's just not enough for him. He orders the person driving to stop. And the person driving was Stephen Parent, who had been visiting the property's caretaker, William Gerritsen, who lived in the guest house. So not even part of the main house. It's This is just so sad. So Watson takes out a 22 caliber revolver and uh, the parent, the young guy is basically, I'm sure it was the women hiding the bushes that backed this up, but he was begging him not to hurt him, saying he won't say anything. Obviously, the things you would say to save yourself, anyone would. Uh, Watson lunges at him with a knife, giving him a defensive slash wound on the palm of his hand that severed 
you guys, I'm going to throw up, severed several tendons and ended up with, with this knife slashing, tore the boy's watch off his wrist. Why? Especially when he continues with shooting him four times in the chest and ab- abdomen, killing him, obviously. Well, not so obviously. There's some seriously crazy survivor stories with stabbings and shootings, including in the head, but another time, guys. I got to focus, right? <laughs> You're all like, please just finish this up. I hope not. I hope you're enjoying this because it's a long one. But like I said, treat it like a book. Just come back to it. Um, So then Watson's like, all right, I need you women to push the car farther up the driveway. Get it out of the way. This is suspicious. It's going to be in the way. Can't have that. So then they get up to the house and Watson cuts the screen out of a window and tells Kasabian to keep watch down by the gate. So she walks over to where they pushed up. Steven's car, Steven parent, and she waits. So that's what I'm saying. That's why she's involved, but she, she didn't do anything. Um, there's also something I read. I think she's one of the ones who later on, I could be wrong, but I read so much stuff later on. She, on another killing, she knocked on the wrong door on purpose to kind of warn the people and to get out of people being murdered. So girlfriend was like, listen, this I'm I'm not really here for this, and I'm here for that. And if it wasn't her, it was somebody, but I really think it was her. So she's waiting at the car, just keeping guard, although I don't know what that's going to do, whatever. So they get, they go through the window, they climb through the window, and he, no, he, Watson's the only one that goes through the window. Because again, he's so stupid, but so freaking smart. So he climbs through and then goes to the front door and lets... Atkins and Krenwinkle in once he unlocks it, which, okay, so they do lock their doors. That's impressive, but apparently doesn't matter because he just gets through the window. Oh, it's like, I can't even think about that or I'll never sleep again. So he, at this point, is whispering to Atkins, which ends up waking up Frakowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. And if you look up some of these links I give you, they'll show you the living room, which is literally exactly from what I remember the scene from Helter Skelter. I mean, they did a really good job with that scene. Um, it it's 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 eerie. It's so oh, it's creepy. Um, but it's also like super open that part, so it makes sense. Somebody. I mean, I feel like I would wake up hopefully with him coming through the window. But either way, once someone starts talking, yeah, I'm probably going to wake up because it's right there by the couch. So he wakes up and he's like, what's going on? And Watson notices that he's waking up. And so he kicks him in the head. Cool. Uh, Frakowski asks him, who are you and what are you doing here? To which Watson replies. And I'm, I'm not kidding. This is a direct quote. I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Sure as shit he does. He's not, he is the devil. He sure is. And he, he does a really good job at uh, making that true because it's, it's disgusting. So he orders um, Atkins to find the house's other occupants, which turn out to be three other people. And he wants Krenwinkle to help. And then they end up forcing everyone into the living room, which, again, is that open area, okay? Super open, large. There's high exposed beams that are actually really beautiful, but 
So it want that that matters, but not yet. Watson ties Tate and Sebring together by their necks with the rope that he brought and then takes it and slings it over one of the living room ceiling beams that I just talked about, which is so weird. I, I, I don't understand that, but whatever. So then Jay is freaking out and just really upset about how they're treating Sharon because it's Sharon, his best friend, and she's pregnant. So Watson's like, I'm done with you and shoots him. So then Abby Folger, Abigail, I don't know if she went by Abby. I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, she was taken quickly back to her bedroom where they were just rounding people up. And she, that's where they found her. Uh, they made her go to her purse and she gave them $70. I'm guessing that's all she had on her. Whatever. So then they take that. And then while that's going on, Watson is stabbing Sebring seven times, even though he just shot him. This guy is absolute evil. Absolute evil. So then, uh, okay, Frikowski's hands had, at one point, they bound them together with a towel, but he ended up freeing himself and started fighting with Atkins, who then stabbed at his legs with a knife. Well, obviously, if you're stabbing, it's with a knife. Um, so then he fights his way out the front door and onto the porch. Like in those movies, you're like, oh my God, you're almost out. You're almost out. No. Watson catches up with him, hits him over the head with the gun multiple times, stabs him repeatedly, and then shoots him twice because, you know, he can't stop himself. He clearly is enjoying this. Kasabian, the girl at the car waiting, guarding or whatever, she claims that she heard horrifying sounds. That's her direct statement. Horrifying sounds that compelled her to move toward the house from her position in the driveway. She told Atkins that someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. So this is got to be the same girl. I think she's like, I can't do this. She later on, if it's not her, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure it is. She later on knocks on the wrong door to save people. And now just hearing this sounds... She can't do it, so she lies and says someone's coming because she just wants them to stop. Ugh, like, could you not have done that sooner? Or could you, like, not be in this cult? I know it's easier said than done, and there's so many brain things that happen, but, oh, it's so... It's like the human in her was showing, and it just couldn't take it. And I, I really wish it would have happened sooner, but yeah, as we know, it didn't. So, yeah, she lies, says someone's coming. Inside the house at this time, Abigail escapes from Krenwinkel and flies out the bedroom door to the pool area. So the bedroom she was staying in, again, look at these links, you'll see the layout. Her door had a door in it and she was able to, like, that's the door that opened out into the backyard area with the pool. It's really pretty, but, uh, so she almost escapes as well, but in the back. Um, where was I at? Where was I? Seriously. Oh, yeah. So she goes out, almost gets out, gets to the pool area. So Krenwinkel obviously chases her, catches her. Oh, so, yeah, she catches her on the front lawn. So she runs out the back but goes around to the front. I feel like that was smart on her part. I don't know if it was an accident, but that's pretty smart because you're, you're going to assume they get going back. But either way, she it did, she didn't make it. Uh, Krenwinkel caught up to her. And stabs her, tackles her to the ground, and then Watson comes out and finishes her off. Of course he does. He can't handle not doing it. Duh. He just can't get enough. 
Uh, <laughs> obviously, he can't get enough because between the two of them, she was stabbed a total of 28 times. Seriously. So then Frakowski struggles across the lawn, but Watson finally absolutely ends him with a flurry of stabbing. Frakowski suffered 51 stab wounds and had been struck 13 times in the head, which so hard, by the way, it bent the barrel and broke off one side of the gun grip, which was actually something that was recovered at the scene. I mean, what the hell? So back in the house, Sharon is the only one alive at this point. You guys, I just, I'm going to cry, I think. She's begging them to be allowed to live long enough to give birth, and she even offered to be a hostage, whatever they wanted, just to try and save her baby's life. But wasn't to be Atkins and Watson or both. This is where it gets tricky later on in court and everything, even to this day. It's not it's not clear. Lots of back and forth. It's very weird. Um, they somehow, whatever, doesn't matter. She's murdered. She's stabbed 16 times. So then Manson had also told the women to, in quotes, leave a sign, something witchy. What does that even mean? I'd be like, can I have some fucking anything else, like more, please? What are you talking about? So Atkins wrote pig on the front door in Sharon's blood. Yeah. You can take what you want, but when you take it from me, I'll make sure that you fall upon the floor. All right, I've got some more information for you. Again, it's not everything. It's nowhere near it, but it's things that I thought are important, things that I thought you would want to know and hear, and things that I feel are worth mentioning. So remember how I said, just like that episode of Chance I did, where people escaping death, it's just wild. And to follow your into your intuitions, whether they make sense or not, um, and you probably do it a lot and you don't even realize you're doing it. Whatever. I'm okay with that. Just trust your gut. Even if it doesn't make sense at all. And it's like the opposite of what you should, should be doing. You got to listen to that because there's reasons for it. So I did not remember this part until after the fact, but so August 8th, you know, when there's that party in quotes, whatever, I don't know why they use that word, but you, you know what I mean? A get together, whatever. Um, so for lunch, Sharon had actress Joanna Pettit and singer Barbara Lewis over, and they remember her talking about how disappointed she was that Roman was delayed in his return from London, which is a good thing, obviously, as we know, uh, Roman did call her later in that afternoon after lunch and everything, but also guess who else called her? Her younger sister, Deborah who was calling to see if she and their other sister, Patty, could spend the night with her. Seriously, I'm not, I can't, I'm not making this up. Sharon said no, and actually she just probably told them she already had plans and wanted them to come over another time. So then that was a huge, can you imagine, oh, I can't. Later that evening, she and J.C. bring Woj, you know, him, and Abigail, went to dinner at El Coyote Cafe, and they ended up getting home about 10.30. Just some fun facts, if you will. So, obviously, after this murder, it's a shit show. It's just horrible. 
Roman was informed of the murders, obviously, which can you picture that being out of the country and just just all of it is just shitty. This is the only way I can describe it is just pure shit. So he gets back home to Los Angeles where obviously he's questioned by the police. It's just protocol. And on Wednesday, August 13th, Sharon was interred in the Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. You guys, seriously, with her son, Paul Richard Polanski, in her arms. Who was he was named posthumously after his grandfather's. Oh, I'm trying so hard not to cry. That is just oh, that's so sad. <clears throat> um, Jay's funeral took place later the same day. Um, they were actually scheduled on purpose, but to be the same day, but several hours apart, so that common friends and I mean, a lot of people I'm guessing went to both because they were best friends. But I think that was really nice how they did that and didn't try to do it at the same time or it, I mean it's just get it done right life magazine ended up devoting a pretty lengthy article to these murders and featured photographs of the crime scenes which is like oh scary but also you have to remember they don't know who did this yet we do now but yeah, it's just, it's hard to, it's easy to forget that. So Roman was interviewed for this article and he even allowed himself to be photographed next to the front door of the house, right next to the picture with the pig written in Sharon's blood, how they wrote it in her blood. He took a picture standing right next to it. He was widely criticized for doing that, but he came right back and argued his reasons. And I have to say, I'm, I get it. And I would probably do the same. You got to do some hard shit for answers. He said that he wanted to know who was responsible. So he was willing, more than willing to shock the magazine's readers in the hope that someone, anyone would come forward with information. So then obviously this is what happens in any case, but especially with celebrities, curiosity about the victims led to the re-release of Sharon's films, which, as this happens, immediately just went off the charts. They just became absolutely super popular. Some newspapers began to speculate about the motives for the murders, human nature. Why? That? What do you mean begin to speculate? I would be doing that right away. Like, what the? what's the reason? Um, some also published photos of Sharon that were alleged to be taken at a satanic ritual. But as we all know, if you're using that brain of yours, they were later proven to be production photographs from Eye of the Devil. So a lot of friends were pissed about this, rightfully so, and spoke out against all this weird portrayal of Sharon by certain media, which still happens today. There are some that you just know, like... No, don't believe anything they say. Mia Farrow said that she was as sweet and pure a human being as I have ever known. That's a direct quote. Patty Duke remembered her as a gentle, gentle creature. Um, <laughs> I love this. I know I was like, I go back and forth on Roman, but I think this changed him after. Like, like I said, you don't know what you have until it's gone type thing. Roman berated crowds of journalists at a news conference asking them, did you ever write how good she was? 
yes, boy, I'm I'm like hands in the air, pumping my fists. Get it. Love that. Because did you? No, you didn't ever. And when you did, it was about her body. Like, I just love that part. I really do. So Rowan also says that he began at this time to suspect lots of different friends, different associates, and kind of became paranoia, which subsided a little bit when the killers were finally arrested. Newspapers claimed that many Hollywood stars were moving out of the city. Like this shook the world, but it shook the city the most. It's like an earthquake. It reaches out. It ripple effects. It affects everyone, but home home base, it just is like a ground zero kind of situation. Um, and also at this time, a lot of people were installing security systems in their homes. Smart move. Very smart move. Uh, Dominic Dunn recalled the tension in this direct quote. The shockwaves that went through the town were beyond anything I had ever seen before. People were convinced that the rich and famous of the community were in peril. Children were sent out of town. Guards were hired. Steve McQueen packed a gun when he went to Jay's funeral. Like, I don't blame him. Like, what if he's like, they knew I was supposed to be there because you don't know who did it until they knew who did it, which happened in September of 1969 when members of the Manson family were arrested on unrelated charges. Isn't this how it always happens? Not always, but it happens a lot. And it's wild, especially with any serial killers like something they just something stupid and then it all comes out and it's just like what so once they get arrested that eventually leads authorities to a breakthrough on Sharon's case as well Sharon and the others let's not forget there were several there they are just as important however this is a story about Sharon Tate so they explained these members of the family, that the motive for the murders was not the identity of the victims, but rather, like we said before, the house at that address, which had previously been rented to record producer Terry Melcher, who was a past friend of Charles Manson. So yeah, that that's, um, I don't know how they're going to sell that again. So they had the same thought when in 1994, it was demolished. And a new house was constructed on the site, like a little bit over, and they had the street address changed to 10066 Cielo Drive. So still pretty much the same, but also doing what they can to change, like make something good come out of that, at least, I would think. In the late 80s, Stephen Kay, who had worked for the prosecution in the trial, for the Manson family murders, uh, was alarmed when he found that the Manson family member, Leslie Van Hooten, which I didn't ever mention because I, I just, it's the longest episode ever. I can't add more, was a part of the LaBianca murders. She had ended up gathering 900 signatures on a petition for her parole. So he contacts Sharon's mom, Doris, who said she was sure she could do better. And the two mounted a publicity campaign collecting over 350,000 signatures supporting the denial of parole, parole. By the way, Sharon Tate's website, which her sister I've mentioned, Deborah, runs, I will be giving you the link to that. And I will also be giving you the link to each of these killers in her case that you can go up and continuously check on when they're eligible for parole and you can sign yourself um, and 
do read everything. Don't, like, I don't want to tell people to just sign everything. Like, read it. Come up with what you believe or don't, whatever. But I wanted you to have the option. So I'll be giving that to you as well. Um, so although Van Houten was seen as the most likely to be paroled, after Kay's and um, Doris's efforts, her petition was denied. So who even knows what would have happened if they hadn't done something? So then Doris becomes a vocal advocate for victims' rights. And in the discussion with everyone consistently about her daughter's murder and even meeting other crime victims, she ends up assuming the role of counselor, using her profile to encourage public discussion and criticism of the corrections system. For the rest of her life, she strongly campaigns against the parole of each of these Manson killers and works very closely with other victims of violent crime. Lots of times she's she confronted Charles Manson at parole hearings explaining, I feel that Sharon has to be represented in that hearing room. If they're the killers pleading for their lives, then I have to be there representing her. She addressed Tex Watson directly during her victim impact statement in 1984 saying, in quotes, what mercy, sir, did you show my daughter when she was begging for her life? What mercy did you show my daughter when she said, give me two weeks to have my baby and then you can kill me? When will Sharon come up for parole? When will, will these seven victims and possibly more walk out of their graves if you get paroled? You cannot be trusted. Doris, girlfriend. Yes, right? So then in 1992, President George Bush recognized Doris Tate as one of his thousand points of light that's his quote for her volunteer work on behalf of victims rights by this time sharon had been diagnosed unfortunately with malignant brain tumor and her health and strength were failing her meeting with bush marked her final public appearance so sad when she died later that year her youngest daughter patricia gay tate known as patty continued her work so she took up the, picked up the torch and went on she contributed to the 1993 foundation of the Doris Tate Crime Victims Bureau, a nonprofit organization that aims to influence crime legis legislation throughout the U.S. and to give greater rights and protection to victims of violent crime. I'm here for that. Yes. In 1995, the Doris Tate Crime Victims Foundation was founded as a nonprofit organization to promote public awareness of the judicial system and to provide support to the victims of violent crime. Patty Tate confronted David Geffen and board members of Geffen Records in 1993 over plans to include a song written by Charles Manson on the Guns N' Roses album, The Spaghetti Incident. She commented to a journalist that the record company was putting Manson up on a pedestal for young people who don't know who he is to worship like an idol. I, I agree with that. I really do. I'm same page. I would have to say I agree with her. After Patty's death, just devastating, from breast cancer in 2000, her older sister, Deborah, continued to represent the Tate family at parole hearings. So then Deborah takes a torch, and she's the one who I was talking about runs the actual website for Sharon Tate, the official one, to this day. So Deborah, Deborah Tate, <laughs> seriously? It's getting real, we're getting real close to the end here, guys, I swear. Deborah Tate said of the killers, in direct quotes, they don't show any personal responsibility. They haven't made atonement to any one of my family members. She's also unsuccessfully lobbied for her sister to be awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I am here, Deborah. I'm going to probably get, I'm going to, after I hit stop record, 
I'm going to be getting into this. I'm going to, I want that to happen. That needs to happen. Let's see what we can do. Uh, so then Colonel Paul Tate preferred not to make public comments. I could see that. However, he was a constant presence during the murder trial. And in the following years, he did, he would also attend the parole hearings with his wife. And he wrote letters to authorities in which he strongly opposed any suggestion of parole. He died in May of 2005. Deborah is literally the only one left of her immediate family. Roman ends up giving away all of his possessions after these murders. He can't bear any reminders of the period that he calls, in quotes, the happiest I ever was in my life. He remained in Los Angeles until the killers were arrested. His 1979 film, Tess, was dedicated to Sharon as Tate had read Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Durbervilles during her final stay with Roman in London, and she ended up leaving it for him to read with the comment that it would be a good story for them to film together. <laughs> you guys, I'm going to cry for like the 50th time. Oh, damn. Okay. He tried to explain his absolute anguish after the murder of his wife and unborn son in his 1984 autobiography, Roman by Plansky, saying, in quotes, Since Sharon's death, and despite appearances to the contrary, my enjoyment of life has been incomplete. In moments of unbearable personal tragedy, some people find solace in religion. In my case, the opposite happened. Any religious faith I had was shattered by Sharon's murder. It reinforced my faith in the absurd. I mean, Roman, I'm so I'm just so sorry that anyone had to deal with this ever. In 2005, Roman successfully sued Vanity Fair magazine for libel after it alleged that he tried to seduce a woman on his way to Sharon's funeral. I don't know why I said that. So weird. Sharon. Um, that's how you say that, Britt. <laughs> uh, among the witnesses who testified on his behalf were Deborah Tate and Mia Farrow. They describe Roman uh, immediately after her death. And Farrow says in quotes, of this I can be sure of his frame of mind when we were there, of what we talked about, of his utter sense of loss, of despair and bewilderment and shock and love, a love that he had lost. At the conclusion of the case, Roman read a statement saying, in part, in quotes, the memory of my late wife, Sharon Tate, was at the forefront of my mind in bringing this action, explaining why he sued, because he did not even want that out there. I'm here for that, too. The murders committed by the Manson family, which it's not just Sharon, Tate, and everyone in that house. Like I said, LaBianca murders, just there's more, okay? And I plan on talking about them at some point in time. They've been described by social commentators as one of the defining moments of the 1960s. I agree. I wasn't there, but for real, I totally agree with that. Joan Didion wrote... Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969, ended at the exact moment when word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community, and in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. So since she died, her work as an actress, Sharon's work, has been reassessed, which again happens, with contemporary film writers and critics such as Leonard Malton, describing her potential as a comedian. A restored version of The Fearless Vampire Killers more closely resembles Roman's intention. 
Malton lauded the film as near brilliant and Tate's work in Don't Make Waves and The Wrecking Crew as her two best performances, as well as the best indicators of the career she might have established. Eye of the Devil with its supernatural themes and Valley of the Dolls with its overstated melodrama have both achieved a degree of cult status, which makes sense. Um, Let's see. So her biographer, Greg King, holds a view often expressed by members of the Tate family when he writes in Sharon Tate and the Manson Murders, which was released in 2000. Here's a direct quote. Sharon's real legacy lies not in her movies or in her television work. The very fact that today victims or their families in California are able to sit before those convicted of a crime and have a voice in the sentencing at trials or at parole hearings is largely due to the work of Doris and Patty Tate. Their years of devotion to Sharon's memory and dedication to victims' rights have helped transform Sharon from mere victim and restore a human face to one of the 20th century's most infamous crimes. I have goosebumps reading that, and I'm going to be reading this auto, this not auto, but this biography, because that's brilliant. Um, Let's see. I'm almost done, you guys. In 2012, the book Restless Souls was published. Authored by Elisa Statman, who was a close friend of Patty Tate, two short chapters in the book are written by Sharon's niece, Bree Taylor Ford, who is the daughter of late Patty Tate Ford. The book contains portions of the unfinished autobiographies of Sharon's father, mother, and sister, Patty, along with Statman's own personal interpretations. Deborah Tate has questioned the book's veracity. That intrigues me. I'm interested to learn more about that. So then a coffee table book written by Deborah Tate called Sharon Tate Recollection was released on June 10th, 2014. It is the first book about Tate that is devoted exclusively to her life and her career without covering her death, its aftermath, or the events that led to it. In 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a Quentin Tarantino film was released, partly portraying the life of Sharon Tate, who was played by Margot Robbie. The film provides a revisioning of the events leading to Tate's death by the Mansons, which is prevented in the film due to the actions of other characters in the work. Now, there's a lot more stuff, you guys, to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about some more pop culture things. But I have a lot of things to talk about as far as the investigation, Helter Skelter, and the aftermath. and, And by the aftermath, I'm talking about the perpetrators so I really want to do that but I might run I might not even be able to do that so we'll see I gotta just plow on through so in 2016 Wolves at the Door it's a horror film Tate was portrayed by actress Katie Cassidy and it's loosely based on the Manson family murders in 2017 Rachel Roberts portrayed Tate in the seventh season of an American of not an American of American Horror Story. The 2018 film Charlie Says has Tate portrayed by Grace Van Dien in 2018. Again, director Daniel Farrens was confirmed to be working on an adaptation titled The Haunting of Sharon Tate with Hilary Duff playing the uh, main character. It was released on April 5th of 2019. Margot Robbie, as we know, portrays Tate in the 2019 film 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, and it is based partly on the Manson murders. Also, there is a link I'm hoping to be able to add that is a YouTube quick little video, and it says it gives you the 10 things that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood got correct about this case, and it's pretty interesting. I covered some of them, but there's some I don't think I did. Kate Bosworth is set to play Tate in the upcoming Screen Gems biopic, Tate, which will be directed by Michael Polish. I cannot absolutely wait for that. I have to see that. I That is Kate Bosworth. I mean, that's per, that's. I didn't read this before. That is perfect. All right. When I come back, I'm going to talk about the, you know what? No, I think I'm going to save this next part for a quick, a bonus, possibly the part focusing on the murderers and them because of two things. Number one, this episode is already the longest thing in the entire world. Number two, I'm with Deb, Deborah, her sister on a lot of this stuff where she really, really, really wants to focus on Sharon as a person, as her talent, who she was, um, and not a victim or focus on the death or make it like the only thing people want to hear about does that make sense this one's about Sharon yeah we had to include the murder because that did happen but most of it is about her and her growing up and everything I have that I was given that I thought would be interesting to you guys because she was a person and she was an amazing person and I feel like I know her even before I read all of this and now I feel like I really know her and it's it's even harder to accept this fact and to dive into this knowing how much I care for her even not, never having met her. I hope you feel the same way because she is just such, she really is a beautiful person inside and out. So yeah, we're going to do a bonus later, possibly. I'm not going to promise anything. But I'm hoping to because it is important. The other parts, it's just it has no place here. This is about her. So let's leave it at that. I hope you guys enjoyed. I I also hope this is the first time I've ever done a long episode like this. I hope you like that. I don't plan on doing that all the time. God, no. But like I said, third time I'm going to say it, really is kind of like reading a book. You don't just read a, I mean, I do read a book in one sitting sometimes, but when you've got things to do, just pause it, come back to it later. Come back to it. You know, if you find yourself dozing off and not paying attention, pause it, come back to it. This is really, really important stuff because this happened and it had a huge impact on history. It had a huge, huge impact on the future because of that. It had a huge impact on the court system, judicial system, things like that, victims' rights. I mean, it, it's a big deal. It really is. And more than that, it's important to remember these people and never, ever forget and never get a little bit too into crime where you're just like obsessed with the wrong part, like fuck the man manson family they just go go to just shut up shut up it's interesting but it's not about you so it's it's good to remember that and remind other people of that while allowing yourself the human nature fascination with psychology and just like what the hell are you thinking it's it's a wild ride and i'm glad that you took this trip with me I love you guys. I hope you enjoy it. I really do. And yeah, I'll be back next week and also maybe in a couple days with the bonus episode. We'll see. Goodbye. Peace out. (laughs) Oh, silly boy. Peace out. (laughs) Peace out.
is a Yellow Wave production. Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go for your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earth to Brit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's. B-R-I-T-T. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes.